Welcome to Libre Lounge, a podcast about free software, free culture, and all the other interesting aspects of user freedom. With Christopher Lemmer Weber and Serge Broklowski. Hi, I'm Serge. I use he, him pronouns. Hi, I'm Chris. I use non-binary pronouns such as they, them. Uh, so, welcome to Libra Lounge. People have been asking us for off-the-cuff episodes with no planning and no editing, right? That's what people want. Uh, but And so that's what you're going to get, I guess. Uh, because as we're recording this, we're stuck in the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh I think we're both stuck at home. Oh, and Libre Lounge off the hook. Yeah. Uh, well, off the hook's another show. Oh, so okay. it's just Libre Lounge. Oh, okay. uh, and so so we're gonna just we're gonna do more episodes, but they're gonna be with way less planning. Although we have a we have a guest scheduled for that we're gonna record later this week. We've got a couple of episodes. I'm the I'm the editor, so I ended up editing, but sometimes it takes me a long time to, to complete a show. Um, so things that we record don't necessarily come out in the order that we record them. Um, so I thought we would just kind of do another grab baggy episode, but with some specifics, I, we, I think we have some specifics in mind. So this weekend, so the last episode we did, the last episode we did, Chris, you asked me all about empty epsilon and I invited you to a game that we played, um, over the weekend with myself and a bunch of my friends. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know, I, I, I'm interested in hearing your take on how it went. Okay. So I think that, um, the game played about how I expected it based off of what we had talked about, um, it, which is good, right? You know, it, it, it delivered that experience of, you know, having the different stations and so on. Uh, I was science officer, so I was mostly looking at a radar and scanning, things and, and like basically everybody's playing a different mini game more or less like that's that's kind of the game right it's like a bunch of people collaborating on different mini games and communicating with each other right yeah i mean i guess in a traditional quote-unquote mini game you know it's 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 not really influential to the game itself but you're right that that each station is essentially doing a different thing but but it's it's all related right it's not like you're playing a you know a pac-man mini game and i'm playing a mario mini game or you know it's that they're all related to the events that are occurring simultaneously okay mild tangent but my my statement is not too far off in that uh there's a board game that's called space cadets very similar um, that everybody's playing different roles, uh, and and there it feels more like mini games. Like one of them, you're playing effectively a like movement game where you're placing these different tiles and rotating them to try to figure out where the ship's going to move. One of them, you play a flick game, and so I feel like I feel like it's uh, I feel like it's not too far off. But you're right. It's the the difference between this and mini games is I think that a mini game feels like a solo activity. Like when I hear mini games, I imagine just people playing a bunch of things and they're, and the stuff that they do isn't that important and doesn't affect stuff too much. And I feel like maybe that's kind of the, maybe that's kind of the thing that, that, that seems objectionable about this. Whereas here, what you're doing has to be in coordination with other people. Yeah. I mean, so I, the reason, look, I was priming you for a specific answer. So I might as well just give you the answer I was expecting. So <laughs> I, I know you had fun. Because you said, "Oh, this was this was fun," but the the other half of that was, you know, I 
neglected to tell you in the last episode we talked about what a pain in the ass um, some of this stuff is because, you know, free software people, you know, tend to write game engines and it's usually a one or two person thing. And a lot of the polish that one normally has in these kind of systems isn't there. And so, for example, okay, good. yeah, well, I was going to say like, you know, server would crash, you know, every so often, uh, missions would be kind of hard to work through just a lot of the, I, I mean, a lot of the polish isn't there, which doesn't mean it's not fun. It just meant that like, yeah, you know, the reality is that free software game is not all of them, but many of them have some rough edges. Yeah. So, um, you're right. The, uh, um, that, that, that did occur. We ended up having quite a few disconnects as we were playing the game. Uh, um, and, and, but I have partly an impression, um, and it's partly because you said so much to me that part, part of the reason for that is that this game is expected to generally be played in the same room effectively, like on a local area network, not over the internet. Is that effectively right? I mean, it's weird because it's, it's right and not right. It's, it's right in that, that was the original, the original proprietary bridge simulator was absolutely built for this. But I know that the um, the author of Empty Epsilon is at least tangentially involved with some online communities who play. And I would actually say that Empty Epsilon is better at internet play, but it's still not perfectly optimized for it. Mm-hmm. Um, in, in that the server does, you know, kind of can crash when you change scenarios or when you change ships. It's, it's, it's just not, it's not perfect, but yeah. I don't want to harp on it. Not being perfect. Like that's not the most important thing. Um, I think the thing is, Hey, you got to play, we got, we got to play a game together. We, you know, for as much time as you and I spend talking and we do talk a lot and as much as both of us are into games, I think you and I have total played like five, not even, games together and in person online all the whole thing yeah not that many um yeah maybe even like three or four like very few well it was good you know like i think that um despite the stops and starts i'm glad i did it um and it gave me a nice feel for what that kind of thing was and and the the other nice thing was that we um that that it, it was that opportunity to communicate with people which um it, it turns out uh, um, Mumble ended up holding up pretty well again in this in this scenario. Um, so uh. yeah, so I thought we would use Discord. Um, I had a really specific reason for for recommending the proprietary software thing, um, which had to do with um, the idea that you could like make multiple rooms and channels, and I thought we would have lots of people, and we actually did have lots of people, but. We couldn't get everyone, we couldn't get the coordination, blah, 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 blah. But audio is actually harder to hear with Discord than it was with Mumble. Mumble worked better. And it was really amazing and kind of heartening to be like, oh, uh, this Mumble thing works way better than this expensive, you know, well, this highly funded proprietary tool. Well, Well, I think that there's something to take out of that. Like we, the, so I feel like, a lot of us have gotten kind of hyper-corrective 
for um, maybe the ways that free software used to be advertised in kind of the, the aughts where like it was like everything's better everything's blah 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 and we're like oh like get ready for all the ways in which free software is not doing as good right and but like you know it's it's i think it's that you know certain things end up being fantastic and certain things end up being not very fantastic and i think that um a lot of it, as you say, happens to be around the areas that are um, quote unquote polished versus not polished. But what the heck does polish mean? Like, which parts of a program are polished? Uh, that's a good question. I mean, I think for games, there are some good answers. Uh, for other applications, I mean, we could go down this road. Let's go down this road a little bit, not not too much. So, I was watching someone review Nextcloud mm-hmm. and. We had Frank from Nextcloud on, uh, I think it was the episode before you returned. Mm-hmm. And I use Nextcloud. I like Nextcloud. And but the argument that the that the person on YouTube had against Nextcloud was that the interface was inconsistent between applications. Mm-hmm. And he's right. <laughs> like, no joke. He's absolutely right. The the interface is inconsistent. The icon, the iconography is inconsistent between applications. And some of this is because the uh, icons and the interface are not all written by Nextcloud. But, you know, whatever the reason, it's, it, it is true. Um, so, you know, we could argue that, that consistency of expectation across the application is a component of polish. Um, I would say stability of application is a component of polish. You know, I don't know. Visual audio appeal. Yeah. Visual appeal is definitely, is definitely one, you know, is it, does it feel good to use? And and look, we're not UX people, but I think UX people would be able to say, oh, well, the reason you like this is because X, you know, reasons X, Y, Z. So, um, so anyway, um, we've you know we, I don't think we need to harp on that. There are some things I want to harp on though. Okay. Uh, so I want to harp on uh, an article that I posted last week, based on a talk that you gave, <laughs> and um, the the reception that my article about your talk got, and. I'm, we'll link we'll link to all these things, but essentially we talked about well you you gave a talk at CopyleftConf and you and I talked about it before you gave the talk and after you gave the talk, and I was expecting that this talk you gave about how the AGPL has these like big holes in it and I'm 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 going to exaggerate a little bit for effect because that's how I. You know, like I try to give the big headline and, and then, you know, get pull people in, right? Like, look at this big hole in the AGPL or look at this big way that the AGPL isn't going to work. Um, and I was expecting you to get a ton of attention and it didn't. Like you gave your talk and, and maybe it's because the copyleft conf talks weren't really um, published. I mean, other than a few. Right. There's no but, recording of the talk, unfortunately, online. Online, yeah. Apparently they have it, but it's now been there's now been a subsequent copyleft conf, so I don't think it'll ever be out. Um, 
So I said, well, gee, you know, it's been a year. I, I, I pinged a few people in the free software community, some leadership about this and didn't get very far. I'm not going to, I'm not going to name names or shame people, but I pinged a couple of, of prominent people in the community and they were like, yeah, they were either like, yeah, I haven't had a chance to look at it or think about it. Or they were like, yeah, there are other things. And I was like, well, wait, this is a major issue. So I posted this, I made this article and it basically, look, it totally is just repeating what you said, but your talk used Lisp. And I was like, maybe the reason that no one picked up on this is that, is that Chris used Lisp. I'll do the whole thing in Python, right? And if I do it in Python, it'll be so accessible that everyone will get it. And then they'll like, they'll all be on our side. Mm -hmm. So, so should we discuss what the talk actually said? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, go for it. All right. So, um, so, so you're right that I used Lisp. Um, the, so, so, so I, I, I want to give some caveats. Um, the talk was not a, the AGPL sucks, um, type talk. Uh, I've been an advocate of the AGPL for a long time, but I've also had concerns kind of in the background that I've tried to poke and prod at people that I, who are fairly knowledgeable on it for some time and didn't really get a lot of direction on it. So I eventually decided, you know what, I'm just going to give this talk at CopyLeft Conf. Um, and, and you're right. I think that there, there wasn't as much of a response to it as I was expecting or hoping. Um, and, and I, it does concern me. Um, and I think the AGPL is really great for, well, let's, I think we should discuss what the AGPL is trying to solve first before we discuss sure. what the challenges yeah, are. That's a, that's a, a good idea. So, uh, my read of the AGPL is that it came out of this this kind of hole in the regular GPL, which is to say, uh, in the regular GPL, if you Chris write a piece of software, and I take that software and I and I turn it into a network service where other people connect to my computer, I am in a sense, distributing it because I am distributing the functionality of it, mm -hmm. but I am not obligated to re to give back to the community because I am merely running it on my own private computer, and so it was it was considered kind of uh, a hole, right? A hole in free software where it's like, oh, well, if I run it as a service, I don't have to give back, right? And, and so the yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, well, let's also sure. contextualize the time at which it came out was kind of the web two, the start of the web 2.0-ish era, right? Where yeah. we saw client-server communication becoming huge, right? Like we, we saw a bunch of applications migrating away from the desktop to being in the browser. Um, and we saw network services kind of really proliferate. Um, and, you know, I think some of the original concerns for... AGPL was like, well, what happens if, for example, uh, GCC, you know, had a proprietary um, extension made to it? But I think that didn't end up happening as much of a as much of a concern as just like programs that were intended to be client to server applications, which users just had no control over the software that was running on the server, even though they depended on that day to day. Yep, as you say, it 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 came about. At a time when, uh, you know, it was this whole Web 2.0, and really that was just, oh, web applications are able to be 
start to look and feel like desktop applications. Yep. And that changed the model because suddenly you didn't have to run software on your own computer. You could just use a web application and it didn't feel clunky or weird. It felt almost as good as just running a native, a native application. So, um, so, so, and I, I want to also say, I think the AGBL is, is a great thing. In fact, I, I'm a big proponent of it and would like to see more software in the, in, you know, in the public sphere and I think the AGPL is a great way to do that. Yeah. So, so starting there, okay. we're, we're both fans. Yeah. So so I'm, I am a fan and for specific things, right? So the, for the things that the AGPL was trying to solve in its era, right? So I think that, you know, I I ran a software project um, called Media Goblin that was, you know, uh, under the AGPL. And it was, you know, like a decentralized media publishing and viewing system. And I think that was a great fit. Right. You know, for like a decentralized, you know, Flickr slash YouTube type system, AGPL is a great fit. Likewise, I think Mastodon and uh, Pleroma and PixelFed and PeerTube, all of those are kind of classic web client server applications. And the AGPL is a good fit. So now let's let's now that we now the love fest is over, <laughs> let's, let's uh, clean up. Let's clean up afterwards and start and start getting critical. Uh, which is actually not critical. So, so before, uh, I, I hate when I hate when people do this, but I'm going to do it now. We're not again. We're not saying this is like uh, that. The AGPL is is totally you know burned to the ground. We're just like, oh, by the way, we there are con- see this area. There are concerns, right? So the the name of the title of the talk was the the boundaries of I think it was the boundaries of network freedom, right? Um, Copy left in the boundaries of network freedom, or something like that. And so that's that's really the framing that I wanted to provide. Like, what are the boundaries of um, our license-based approach to try to preserve user freedom, right? Like, what things should we try to do, and what are what are the potential unintended side effects? Um, so, so this is where let me introduce what I started to do in the talk, which is where I think you correctly pointed out that people got confused, and then we'll try to unconfuse the audience. Um, so the reason my talk, I think was not that well understood as I said, okay. Um, and there'll be a specific portion of the audience of our show who will like be like, this makes perfect sense. But, uh, um, I was like, okay, you know, part of the thing is we have this perception that there's a major difference between code and data in our software. Um, you know, if I'm opening Audacity and recording this right now, there's Audacity, the program, and then there's the audio I'm I'm recording in it, right? Two different things, right? And then I also have my configuration file for Audacity that's stored somewhere, and that's also data, right? Two separate things, and that's kind of the distinction that we're used to. Um, so the the part where things start to get messy is I'm like, well, okay, so look at Emacs on the other hand. And Emacs being a text editor that's written in Lisp, um, the Lisp community famously kind of says there's very little distinction between code and data. Um, And when I configure Emacs, when I configure my mail client, for instance, uh, and I have incoming mail, um, I have uh, I all of that configuration is actually written in code in Emacs Lisp, and that code. um, So when I say okay, I'm filtering this email from this mailing list and this email to this mailing list. And also, oh, I'm going to run a function here. So 
since it's code and data, I can also embed uh, a function that says, um, you know, oh, when this message comes in, run this test against it, and maybe we'll filter it into this folder if it passes a test, and we won't if it doesn't. But that function has to be, if you said that that function wasn't code, then you'd pretty much lose all the kind of defenses that we generally make around copyleft, right? Of the kind of source requirements, because it doesn't so, look very I'll, different. I want to stop you, because I feel like we're going exactly down the road where I feel like you lost people last time. Okay, great. So for the for the people who so look we have a ton of very smart lispy people who listen to the show mm-hmm. and they're gonna be like duh right everything you said like that's obvious but that's not most people and that's what I you know most people are not used to you know programming their their system like that mm-hmm. so let's just say it differently it there are systems in which there is no distinction between configuration and code because the configuration itself is written in code and contains executable components where, and and that's all that, that, that encapsulates everything you just said. Right. Right. And so on the Fediverse, and I forget the name of the person who brought it up, but somebody said, pointed out that, it may be easier to understand configuring web applications as an example of this, right? So um, your Django application or your PHP application may contain, um, may actually be written in either Python or PHP. Um, usually people are just putting in things like, you know, uh, you know, my- Some strings. Some, some or, strings, you know, stuff yeah. like that, right? You know, but if you start dumping in functions, then it gets more complicated. Um, so- yep. So, and there's like, so basically if your configuration starts to do things like, you know, test conditions or starts to, uh, you know, run sorting internally or any kind of thing where it's no longer just, you know, variable equals string constant, then the lines start to blur about, well, wait, what is configuration and what is code? Right. So this, so the GPL generally doesn't have a big problem here because the GPL effectively has the right to private modification because the program that I'm running on my computer, it's it's really the thing that I'm distributing to somebody as a program where I have to provide the source code and all the, the kind of rights that copyleft requires, right? Um, but that's not the case once we introduce a network requirement for distribution, right? Because the reason is now, so let's take... Um, just abstractly, let's imagine that I had some email client um, that for whatever reason, the filtering of my email into these different folders contained code. And you don't have to think about how it works, just that that's there. Um, and now that means that if uh, I'm communicating over the network with someone else, then in theory, that other entity on the network has the right to be able to see what my configuration is. And my code may be very specific in such a way that it reveals information about what kind of mailing list I'm subscribed to and et cetera. Well, let's talk about why that's the case. Cause I think that's, that, that's another area where people might get lost. So as we just discussed, the, the Allegra GPL specific. I think it's the Afero GPL. Afero, sorry. I always screw that up. Anyway, the Afero GPL. It's live, so semi-live. Yeah, uh, semi-live. Uh, it's live as far as you know. 
so it specifies that if you make your network service available, that an end user of that network service has all the same rights as they would if you'd given them a binary copy, which means that they can ask for the source code. Right. Right. That's that's the whole raison d'etre of the of the Afero GPL. Right. So what Chris is saying is, okay, so if you're if you're an end user of a system that's been configured like this, where it's not just so it's obvious in some system it's obvious that configuration is configuration and code is code and and it's understood that you don't have to that there's no distinction. Or sorry, that there's a that's sorry there that there's a clear distinction between configuration and execution. But the the complicated part is that if you have a system where configuration is itself a dynamic uh, is dynamically generated through code or contains code, then the argument that the two are are completely separate starts to break down. And you could make an argument that the two are in fact not separate. The more sophisticated the configuration is in terms of the way it, it, the way it's dynamically generated or dynamically executed. It, it again, if if it's just a set of you know variable one equals string one, variable two equals string two, we're not talking about that. That's not a big deal, and that's understood. But if but if it's something generating configuration or the configuration again is is doing something very interesting or or or, or bizarre you know then it then that might then that argument starts to break down that the two are separate and at that point if someone is a user of the system and then they request the code the the argument that that configuration should be exempt becomes harder to make right um and uh let's let's also point out that in this is more likely to come up in the kind of systems that I think we would like to move towards um so especially well and by that you mean that you're building <laughs> yeah the kind of systems that I'm trying to build right so more peer to so first of all we talked about you know the AGPL coming about and trying to solve the problems with client to server centric systems right so what happens when we move to more peer to peer systems right now there's no nobody's what what we usually think of the AGPL trying to prevent against is the fact that there's this idea of there's this other entity which could be like a corporation or somebody else who might want to lock things down for monetary reasons and that they have to be able to keep things free but what if it was everyone is effectively a client um, and a server in the system and everyone has source distribution requirements um so once we introduce that this is the first thing that starts to make this more complicated and something we have to think about more often it's not just that servers have to think about it um you know, imagine if, and actually this could happen, uh, imagine if your browser was written under the AGPL, um, like Firefox was, and uh, you contact a server and the server wants to actually request the source code of your browser and say, hey, what are all the plugins you have installed, right? Um, that would be pretty alarming, I think, right? And especially if it ended up involving what are the configuration of those plugins. Now, imagine if your whole system is written in that kind of way. I mean, and that's a very abstract, you know, thing because most people are like, well, okay, but those are clearly client server. 
and what what makes this interesting, I think, is that if we actually stop making analogies and just start talking about the kind of systems that you are building, in which there is no client and there is no server, there are just two peers communicating, right? And that's it. And there and the other thing that makes it interesting is in the systems that you're building, the distinction between making an at what the uh, GPL would call an at arm's length call and making a local call is invisible to the, to the user. And even in, and even in some cases invisible to the programmer. So you don't really know whether this object that you're running is running on your computer or on a computer halfway across the globe. That's right. And so what we're used to thinking about, and the GPL does contain some, some text in it, I think it's non-normative, but that, that says that, um, oh, the arm's length thing in there. And yeah, like what, what does arm length's length mean when you have things talking over the network, um, especially in the kind of systems that the way that we normally think of building programs in like a web 2.0 type system is you have something like a, what's called a RESTful API that a programmer very carefully crafts and thinks about all of the design of that API that they're going to hand out to developers. In the kind of actor model-based object capability systems that I'm working on, and I know I just threw out a ton of jargon, um, there every single object in your system is potentially an API endpoint. Every object. And then that means that you have to think about compliance for every object that you're interacting with. And if if we had these two, if we objects A and B are in the same process, you'd be like, oh, absolutely, they're linked together. But what if one of them, the same code can operate off of whether they're in the same process or whether or not A and B are on completely different machines? What happens is in terms of linking requirements then? Yeah. So, so that's, I mean, and that was pretty much the whole, you know, the whole argument was just, was essentially, you know, what we just said. And the feedback that I received from, I guess, a, a draft version or an early version, I should say, of my article was basically, you know, I don't see the, I don't see the problem because I, I started talking about source code and source code generation. And I kind of overemphasized that point. But the, when I revised the article and started focusing more on the configurations, configuration part that we just talked about, the feedback I got was, well, it's obvious what's configuration and what's code. Therefore, this can't be a problem. And it's like, so your argument, I mean, and I actually said this on, I had this discussion on Reddit and I was like, so your argument is that I'm, I, this can't be broken, right? It, it can't be this broken. Therefore, I must be wrong, <laughs> right? And it's like, well, no, the, you know, I and Chris are not wrong. It's the license that, that there's an impedance mismatch between what we want it to say and what it actually says. Yeah. Um, I, I, again, yeah. So I think that there's, yeah. So we, there were a number of comments have been like, well, that effectively that can't be what the implementers meant. And, and I think what, what you and I are saying are, is that's right. Is That's right. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Like that's no right. they didn't mean this. <laughs> yeah. It, that wasn't right. intended. Right. Um, yeah. And, you know, but the same thing happens in software as it does in legal documents, right? I can, I can say, well, um, I mean, granted with legal documents, there's a, there's sometimes a, a, 
a, a human being that's interpreting them and trying to think about intent, but it can that can only go so far. But even in with software, you know, I may not have intended to release a bug in the software. Um, that doesn't mean that there's not a bug. Yeah. So that's it. I mean, we'll post we'll post the link and hopefully. So so actually, I want to talk. There's one last part. Um, Chris, you in your talk had a conclusion that I disagree with. Okay. So your conclusion was the GPL is a suitable license and we'll just, we should just bait. My read was basically just use the GPL. So, it, it, it'll solve this problem. So, so can I defend why, what that was? And then you can disagree with why. So let me give okay. the explanation for the talk. The, the whole talk. No, no, or no, just, no, just that part? end part. Okay. Okay. So okay. what, what I was saying was, um, the GPL still does something really effectively, right? So if you imagine that you had some game and you had this really cool monster, like a fire elemental or something like that, and that gets distributed to you over the network, maybe even in binary form, um, if you're getting the, the binary code distributed to your computer for that fire elemental, the GPL should re- apply and you should be able to get the source code for it. However... If you're interacting with something that's on the other end of the network, um, and uh, you you're you're just talking to a reference to that fire elemental, then uh, the then you don't have um, then basically you have rights to the things that you actually get handed to you, but for the things that aren't handed to you, you don't necessarily get rights to those, which is how the GPL was intended to work in the first place. And I think in these kinds of systems I'm talking about. Um, more peer-to-peer systems where the distinction between code and data is much smaller, I think that that's actually um, great. Like, that's actually perfectly acceptable. And I I would say yes, but. <laughs> and my yes, but is yes, but you're... And you've already, you've already said this in this conversation, but I'm going to repeat it because I think it's important. You're talking about a peer-to-peer world in which you're talking about a peer-to-peer world, uh-huh. and that world that you're building is not the world we're in right now. And my perspective is that the Afero GPL or another license could be written to uh, potentially address the issues that we've pointed out. Without have you know, without just saying, well, we'll default back to the GPL. I agree with you that in the case of um, that in the case of a peer-to-peer world of the type you're talking about, that you may be that I w- I will concede that you may be right that the GPL may actually be a great license, and we have a whole we should we should have a whole separate conversation about you know what the implications of that are, and I'm sure we will. But I think we I think we can address some of these issues now with modifications to the Afero GPL. I'm not necessarily convinced that's true. It may be possible, um, but I would have to see what they are before I could comment on them. Right? Yeah. Anyway, uh, so that was so that was. I, I mean, I don't think I don't think we're going to get anywhere, right? With talking about this. Well, well, do we want right to talk now. about? Um, let me throw this out here, or we could say, "Whoa, this is too big of a topic. Let's save that for a different time." Um, but there, there, one of the things that people really responded to strongly was about stuff like neural networks and genetic 
programs, which well, is a yeah, separate, I was gonna, it's a side I was topic. Go there. It's a side yeah, topic. Yeah, I was going to go there. Uh, I, I, so so the, the question is, what happens when you either have no source code because some process has generated the source code or a more kind of down-to-earth version that people can understand today is, what if your program execution is based on uh, a set of machine learning training data? So, you know, let's talk about something like Mozilla Speech, Deep Speech. So you can download Mozilla Deep Speech, uh, that training, you know, the, 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 the training data, not the training data, but the... Um, the executable data and that that executable set i think is like i, I want to say it's like a couple of gig but the training data the actual data that it's based on is like terabytes right and the question is so if if that in in this peer to peer world that you're talking about if i said well give me the source code for your speech system you might be like well the source code to my speech system is all of my training data plus all of the random number generator seeds, you know, plus, plus, plus. Right. And, and I'd be like, well, that's what you have to give me, right? If I want to be able to replicate your work and that, that would pose a huge burden. Let's put it. Th- and yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. So, so let's, I, I like fun gamey examples, as you know, uh, um, and I'm going to tie it back to something more serious uh, in a second. Um, what if we imagine we have this distributed game, and we had something like we'll call it Libremon, like a, a free software Pokemon, except that the 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 monsters were literally genetically engineered. Like they used genetic programming, like you know, one like the programming language Push GP or something like that, where the monsters you had them fight each other, and then whoever won, literally it breeds a new offspring program between the two of them. And no human writes it, right? It's just generating that thing. And so you get this new bread thing, um, the source code in theory is every single fight that ever happened all, through all time, right? And all the monsters that bred together, right? Do you, do you need to have access to all of that time? And my feeling is no. Um, you know, with, similarly, if I actually encounter a real frog and I, you know, sequenced that frog um, and got the all the DNA code for that frog... Um, I feel like uh, what I really need there is the right to be able to have the right to study. Well, okay, now we're getting into real genetic engineering. So um, let's back to the game version. St- study, gen- uh, modify, distribute the the game frog instead. We'll say. Yeah, I think that's. I think, and actually, so I'm going to say that to answer this question gets to the heart of free software which is why do we want the right to study? It's not just for some esoteric reason. It's because we believe that having the source code uh, increases the sum of human knowledge. I would, I would have an argument that the, the system upon which uh, the Libra, what, what did you call it? Libra monster? Libramon. Libramon was built is is the is the is the knowledge mm-hmm. it's not the actual monster now of course you may be able to take the monster apart and understand its genetic code but it's not every single fight it's how the it's how the system is put together um 
Well, well, here's here's a question that okay. sometimes gets well. I like to throw around at least. Uh, if we could go back in time, uh, so so let's make a distinction between the GPL and CC BIASA, right? CC BIASA has no source code requirement. However, mm-hmm. um, I think it's valuable that the GPL has a source code requirement for software. Um, mm-hmm. For for things like this podcast, I don't think it's it would be great. Because I think that it would be very expensive for us to host all of the source code for these shows, right? I don't even know what the source code for this show would look like, like because when when I when I use Audacity to edit the show, I don't do it in a way that's like I can't programmatically recreate. I'd love actually to be able to do that, but I can't programmatically recreate the show. You know, all the little things like when I, you know. When I edit out someone's, you know, chair squeaking, whether it's yours or mine, or or whether I, you know, edit out a click or, or whatever, or if I'm breathing too know, heavy into the mic, or I do the same, and I do the same thing, right? Each of those, each of those edits, you know, we 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 would we would have to be able to programmatically, you know, recreate, and the software I'm using doesn't doesn't allow for that. I mean, it just doesn't have that as an option. Well, the the the, the GPL v3 does very usefully say the preferred form for modification right so you could say that maybe at some point this is the preferred form you have is just the audacity files you know maybe a multi-track audacity file that you happen to have at that time like that's the best form that you had but even that i feel like is like a little bit too much to ask is to say keep those flack files around and keep those audacity files around right um the so so i think that there's for source code and for for computer programs, we've we really lucked out in that our um, the way that we write programs happens to not be that expensive to store and kind of keep the history around of, and that's not the case for um, some other creative endeavors. Yeah, that's right. I mean, and we've and you know, I've heard experts in this area talk about like, well, gee, wouldn't it be amazing if we could do you know, if, if we could study the creation of work, you know, in this way and have all the, the various steps. And, and I'm like, yeah, maybe it would be, right? Maybe it would be awesome. Yeah, I mean, I got, but... I've gotten a lot out of watching the Blender open movie. Like, the, the Blender Institute puts out these open movies, and I've actually opened up – they release all the Blender files for them, and I've actually opened them up and studied them. They're not required to do that, but I've – gained a lot of value from the fact that that's there yes um but it would be hard if it was required all the time right so so here's here's a question um this is this is a question that is let's acknowledge on the face is a little bit farcical because it's not going to happen if you could go back in time before software was able to be copyrighted and you said you have one of two paths available to you in the future, um, where one of which is um, software never becomes copyrightable. And the other one is software becomes copyrightable and all these terrible things happen, but we're able to use the copyright to be able to require that people give away source code for software. Which which direction would you choose at that point in time? And for me, it feels obvious, like, oh, obviously I would choose no copyright, right? In Despite the fact that I'd still want source code to be available, uh, so so that strikes me as if like there's a desire for a normative requirement even in the absence 
of source requirements to have software to have source code to say we would like so you to keep around the so the source code in many of these cases but we don't live in that universe we can't rewind time and we're not we're almost completely unlikely to be able to do that so i think source requirements for software continue to be really useful because we're not we're not going to get to that point anytime soon see it's funny cuz i come to i i come to this weird conundrum and end up actually flip going on the opposite side of you for for the same for the same exact reason but i come to i come to the opposite conclusion um which is so i i believe it was iceland um and i might be wrong about the country because i don't have my research in front of me about this because we didn't plan this but there was a pirate party in one of the i believe uh you know northern countries and scandinavian countries and they put out a statement saying we, we want no software to be copyrightable and the fsf said or i believe it was the fsf said well wait a second if you do that then there's no more protections for copy lefted software and i think in a world in which we never had software copyright then what we would have ended up with is um trade secrets so 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 that's but what if you so that i feel like um you could argue against so so what we could argue is um a couple of things one of them is what if you had the right to be able to study any binary program you got like you have the right to study oh, everything okay. you got and it, we never outlawed um uh 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 we never out outlawed reversed engineering and uh and then on top of that we encouraged a strong norm. So, you know, for example, I Well, that's different. Now, hold on. Now, now you're adding you're adding new things to your scenario and then retroactively going, "See, if you just add all these things, you you said if we just had never had copyright." And my my uh, my argument is that if we in a world in which we never had copyright for software, we we would have ended up here anyway because because the powers that be would have used other mechanisms to compel uh, uncooperative behavior. So let's let's say um, there are a suite of intellectual restriction tools, sometimes called intellectual property, but I like intellectual restriction. So, for example, patents and software um, and copyright and trademarks, to all some degree, are intellectual restriction tools, and they all operate very differently. Uh, I I. I don't I don't agree about trademark, but okay. Let's well, keep it's going. still an intellectual restriction tool, but it's more justifiable in some cases, maybe. Um, but but it still does a thing where you your your application has to be you know the way that you convey ideas has to be controlled. Um, I wouldn't. I would. I would. I would call them censorship tools. But sure, let's let's keep okay, going. So so we could we could go further and say let's say we had a point in time. So you're, you're right. I'm modifying the scenario. Let's say we had um, we could go back in time and say, you know what, we're going to ban all of those intellectual restriction laws when it comes to software. We're just not going to permit any of those to apply, and we're going to encourage strong norms around sharing software. And uh, the like the same okay. way that well, in that case, in that case, then the, then then it becomes obvious, right? Then, then it just now now you've just weighed so much. That there's only one there's only one possible outcome. Well, right, and again, this is a this is a some a reality we're never probably going to see in our lifetimes, right? Um, the, this, 
I mean, you might as. I mean, but at that point, it's like you know, it's not Sophie's choice. Now she only, you know, now now she only has one daughter, <laughs> right? It's like, well, what's Sophie's choice? <laughs> well, maybe. Um, the so so, but I I think that part of the point there is that um, the reason why there is a grasp towards uh, um, copyright as that tool is because of a fear that other groups have other tools to lock things down that we don't have access to, and this is effectively the tool that we've had. Um, and, and, but, but I want to lean on that for a little bit, um, which is to say that I think that, um, for those who really think a lot about free software and user freedom, a lot of the effort and emphasis we put on, uh, how to solve problems is thinking about what are the ways to solve them in licenses because people who really are interested in free software tend to be the ones who pay attention to licenses. And that ends up with a temptation to say, let's try to solve all the problems in licenses. And there may be other layers on which to solve problems. And I think this is I, I this is a tangent, but I think this is entirely related to the, you know, um the the use restriction licenses that we're seeing become very popular for reasons things that i'm very sympathetic to turns out there was one that was posted which is called the vaccine public license that said anyone can use this except for anti-vaxxers basically um it, mm. which is like i i really care about that i think vaccines are like vaccinating the public is very important but but i don't think that you want to put that clause in a license yeah i i agree i mean we we talked about this a little bit um while you were gone with the episode with molly de blanc um, about but why putting these things? So, so what you're so what you're speaking to is that while we talked about why it's not a good idea to put these kind of restrictions in the license, you're saying, well, these kind of things could be could be put elsewhere. Where I, um, well, so let's let's talk about that a little bit. A question copyright, and I've mentioned this. I don't know ad nauseum. Um, we talked about how you could use trademark as a tool to to encourage it and the other the other component of this is that we believed that um that the uh, that the fans of the work would be the ones uh you know pushing for fairness etc that that essentially the community would would cohese is that a word cohese sure uh, around around um, authors that they supported, where where you're where you're coming. What 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 the distinction I want to make though is that there's a difference, a distinction between using the tools of the systems that we are pushing against, which is why it's copyleft, right? Because we're using copyright against itself, or trademarks, which again we're using we're using a, a legal mechanism, and I think what you're saying, which is well, there are non-legal mechanisms we could also use. That's right. So 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 let me back up because I it may sound like I'm suddenly a very anti-copyleft person, and I'm not right. Like I actually think that the GPL is great, and that was the conclusion to my talk. You know, was that um, the GPL is an excellent tool because it turns kind of the teeth of the machine against itself. Um, and I think that that's wonderful. Um, and I think that, uh, that that's, that's absolutely wonderful. And I think there are other problems that we may want to solve, which are, you know, so I think what should be in a free license is effectively the things that undo, um, the kind of damage caused by intellectual restriction laws. Like that's the stuff that fits in a free software license and, and not much else. 
Um, but I think that there are other problems we want to solve, and we we can take a multi-layered approach to solve them. So, for instance, um, code of conducts are a great way to um, solve. I think that they're really important for being able to uh, set community expectations of behavior, but they're not. Code of conducts are not currently actually checked into copyright licenses. They're separate files checked into in a repository. And that's on a separate layer, and I think that works great. And similarly, um, you and I are both very concerned about the ability to distribute private, um, distribute and share data in a peer to peer network and maintain privacy. Um, but instead of encoding that in a software license, we're trying to develop the technology to actually use encryption to provide those guarantees. And that's a separate layer than using the legal tool. Yeah, that's right. Um, I mean, I would, I would in some ways say that that's more kind of classic free software in the, in the sense of like, you know, we own, we programmers only, uh, you know, fall back on legal tools when we have to. Right, like we don't we don't really like using the legal tools, but we don't have we don't have a, another great way of compelling people to behave, uh, you know, be excellent to we we don't have a way of compelling people to be excellent to each other, uh, that that's uh, strong other than the legal mechanisms. Yes, yeah, I think that's true. Or or within the domains in which we control, hence code of conduct, because codes of conduct only work in so much as the uh, the community that they're in um, uh, enforces right. them. It's a community normative tool. Um, and I think that that's wonderful. So so I think uh, it's really nice that we have this light episode about space games. Yeah. Uh, I, <laughs> I wonder if anybody started listening to this episode and they're like, oh, they're talking about FD Epsilon again. I, I just want to tune in for the software stuff. And then, you know, or... We're like, I just want to tune in for the space game thing, and that ended up in the reverse. <laughs> but uh, you know, you you all asked for it. You asked for an off the cuff, more casual conversation about future freedom, you, and yeah. what you, you got, what you and got. And this is what we do. <laughs> yeah, you you want to know how we really talk? It's it's not you know it's not like it's not. I I mean, on the other hand, what do I? I have no idea what normal people talk about. Like, I have no idea what a normal two person conversation sounds like. This is an entirely normal conversation for us and for other people we why, know. Why would it, what people don't talk about this every day? <laughs> uh, yeah, those are sane people. Don't 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 talk about this every day. Oh man, we've had an Omar, almost an hour of this. Holy moly! Um, so, I don't know. Is there anything? I I know we actually had other things. Where we're like, oh yeah, we could talk about this. We could talk about that. I wanted to talk about accounting again, should... but you know, <laughs> yeah, we could talk. I, I mean, we could talk. About I think accounting we. Again, I think but you know what? We're doing so many episodes that I want to give your accounting thing so much time that people can skip. I mean, listen to in detail. Um, <laughs> uh, I actually have I actually have thoughts on accounting myself, what? other than just. We should not but... switch to as heavy slash dry as a slash thrilling <laughs> of a topic as accounting um, after after something so heavy. I think <laughs> after I think... such a thrilling <laughs> uh, license episode, <laughs> I think we need to wind um, this down. Anyway, I hope that I hope yeah, that people can right. listen to this and understand um, that we're coming to this stuff from a position of um, 
of love. Lo- a position of love. <laughs> yeah, not from a. Yeah, uh, yeah. No, genuinely, like this is, like this is a discussion of people who love this stuff, and love this software and love the licenses. This is not like we're not tearing it down. We're not punching. You know, we're not punching down. We're we're saying like, hey, we need to we need to strengthen free software. Yeah. All right. So, uh, how can people get involved with this thrilling topic? Uh, I I, I want to say something snarky here, but but I'll instead I'll I'll end it with uh, they can join us on Hash Libre Lounge on Freenode. Uh, I, I was the snarky thing is well you know, they they can they can go to the FSF channels or the Conservancy no, channels no, 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 and have no. these so, same conversations. Everybody, okay. everybody's so overwhelmed in the free software community. We want to be nice to each other. Okay. Well, this is this is, this is an episode made of love, that's, right? That's, that's true. Uh, spread the I mean, love. We should all open and... the, do- the window at seven p.m. and all start yelling outside all of our opinions about licenses. Well, uh, that's not the kind of expression. So, what Chris is referencing is that in many places, um, people are opening their windows and yelling at seven p.m. in support of healthcare workers during this. COVID ep- epidemic, um, just making noise to so that uh, people that work in the healthcare industry, you know, doctors, nurses, and others, um, know that they have our our support and our love, and um, you know, make that known. Uh, so don't air your grievances uh, <laughs> out the window. Show your support for 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 people who are risking their lives to to help others in this time. Um, and when you're not doing that. Come on, hash Libra Lounge on Freenode and join us, or email us at podcast at LibraLounge.org. Find us at the Fediverse at uh, Libra Lounge at Floss.social, or find us on Twitter at Libra Lounge. And help, uh, you know, give us feedback. Tell us what you thought of the show. Tell us why we're wrong. More importantly, tell us why we're right. Uh, and. Uh, <laughs> And <laughs> we're getting a bit punchy towards the end of this hour, I think. Well, it's also it's also it's also past my bedtime, and you're going to be like, "Wait, it's only nine p.m. as we're recording this," and that, that's right, it's past my bedtime. And uh, yeah, so thanks for thanks for listening to us, and uh, we hope that you'll join us again yep. soon. Take care. All right, bye. You've been listening to Libre Lounge can find and subscribe to us at LibreLounge.org. This podcast is released under the Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 4.0 International License. Our theme music is Bossa Nova by Joff, which is waved into the public domain under CC0 and which you can find on OpenGameArt.org. If you'd like to support Chris Weber's work on this and other user freedom projects, you can donate at patreon.com forward slash c-w-e-b-b-e-r thanks for listening see you next time